ahead and take out your Bibles. Turn to Matthew chapter 17. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one in the chair somewhere in front of you, hopefully. We're going to be speaking this morning about faith's poor substitutes. Poor substitutes. I remember once as a kid, uh, my brother and I would come home from school. I think I was, I don't know, this might have been junior high or elementary school. And my brother liked chocolate milk. He's three years older than me. I, it's not really important to the story, but just so you know. He liked chocolate milk. And I like strawberry milk. Anybody like strawberry milk? Yeah. And you remember Nesquik? Is that still a thing? Is that still around? So that was how we made chocolate or strawberry milk. You take the chocolate powder and the strawberry, or, or, or the, don't mix them. That would be gross. Hmm. Maybe it would be good. I don't know. Anybody ever mix them? That sounds very rebellious. Okay, so, so mix them up. Or if we couldn't find the Nesquik, you had to. You could get the Hershey syrup out of the, the fridge and like put it in. And that, that worked too. It was just more work. But I remember, I know, we were lazy kids. What are we going to say? But I remember one time he couldn't find any Nesquik. He couldn't find any Hershey, Hershey syrup. And so he found a, a jar, a, a tin. It was brown. It said Hershey's. Hershey's cocoa. And he thought, well, that's chocolate. And so he proceeded to take scoops of Hershey's cocoa, which is a powder. And he dumped it into his cold milk and stirred it up. Now, if you've never done this, you might not think, what, what's the big deal? If you have done this, you know right away what the really big deal is. See, Hershey's cocoa powder does not mix in with a liquid unless you like heat it up and melt it. It, it will not at all. It floats to the surface. It will not get wet. Literally, it won't get wet at all. It just sits there on the surface. So he mixed it as much as he could. And he was like, well, you know, how bad could it be? He takes a drink. He goes, oh, this is gross. And like any good brother, what does he do next? You have to try this. Of course. So I tried it. And, and it was disgusting. It wasn't sweet at all. It was absolutely bitter. You get a mouthful of the powder sitting on top of the milk. You get just a tiny little bit of the milk underneath it. But it was just gross. Kids, if you're trying to make chocolate milk, do not use Hershey's cocoa. It is not the same thing. It doesn't matter what the tin looks like. It lies, okay? It's not the same thing. It was a poor substitute for making chocolate milk. Now, we're going to look today at some poor substitutes for faith. Three things that we can put faith in that are poor substitutes for Jesus Christ. And unfortunately, these, these sorts of substitutes can become very deceptive. We think that we're focusing on Christ. We think we're focusing in the right place, but it's not the best. And it's not what our faith should be rooted in. Now, I need to say at the outset, we're going to be in Matthew 17, verses 14 through 27, I believe it is. And if you look at this, this is what's known as narrative, okay? Matthew is simply telling us, Jesus did this, Jesus said this, this happened. He's simply telling us what happened. There's really no interpretation, there's no real application, there's no devotional thought here. It's this happened. 
But I see something that kind of ties through this, this idea of these substitutes, specifically that the disciples are kind of falling into or could fall into. So I want to bring those out and help us to learn from this passage something to apply to our lives. So let's start with the first poor substitute, which is our own efforts. Our own efforts. We can think, well, if if I could just do enough, if I could work hard for Jesus, that would be good. Or some people take Jesus out of the equation. I'll just be a good person. If I can just live a good life. Now, the context of where we're jumping into here, in case you weren't here last week, is that Jesus has just come down off this mountaintop with two or three other disciples, rather. And at the top of this mountain, Jesus was transfigured before them. His glory shone around them. And they looked at him and they realized that he was much more than what they thought he was. This is truly God, truly the Son of God. So he's on a mountaintop, his deity displayed, and now they've come down from the mountain. And this is the scene that meets them. And this is an interesting reminder that in your faith, mountaintop experiences are often followed by very mundane activities. Very normal and sometimes difficult frustrating things in our lives. So let's read verses uh, 14 through 21. When they came to the crowd, a man approached Jesus and knelt before him. Lord, have mercy on my son, he said. He has seizures and is suffering greatly. He often falls into the fire or into the water. I brought him to your disciples, but they could not heal him. You unbelieving and perverse generation, Jesus replied, how long shall I stay with you? How long shall I put up with you? Bring the boy here to me. Jesus rebuked the demon and it came out of the boy and he was healed at that moment. Then the disciples came to Jesus in private and asked, why couldn't we drive it out? He replied, because you have so little faith. Truly, I tell you, if you have faith as small as a mustard seed, you can say to this mountain, move from here to there and it will move. Nothing will be impossible for you. Now, what's going on here? A father is struggling. He's struggling because his son is in trouble. His son is being injured by these seizures. And we find out from the text that these seizures are specifically being caused by a demon that is inhabiting this poor child. Now, some people today will say, well, you know, today we would just call that epilepsy. But they didn't know that, so it was just a spiritual thing. Actually, they were aware of epilepsy. It was, and they had a word for it. They, they knew what that was. And they did not consider that demon possession. This was something different. This child did not have epilepsy. He was possessed by a demon, and the demon was trying to hurt the child. That's what demons do. Demons try to make God look bad by hurting God's creation. They can't get to God, so they try to get to his created creatures and beings. They try to hurt us. And so... This man brings this child, as Jesus is up on the mountain, this man brings the child to the disciples that did not go up on the mountain. And the disciples are unable to drive out the demon. And this is the scene that Jesus comes down to. And this father walks up to him and basically says, can you help my child? And Jesus' response is rough, Right? This is one of those instances where we have to say, what is going on here? Is Jesus being mean to this man? A couple things to take into account with Jesus' response. 
First of all, the words that he's using are pretty much straight out of the Old Testament. So that clues us in that Jesus is trying to draw attention to something. The other thing is that in this section of Matthew, Matthew's emphasis is Jesus teaching his disciples. That's the emphasis over and over and over again. And at the end of this passage, that's where it's going to lead to Jesus instructing his disciples. Now, I take this. My understanding is that Jesus is not responding to this poor father and calling him a wicked and perverse generation. He's actually instructing everybody around him, specifically his disciples. So he's not just calling out this guy like a good teacher. He is using this as an opportunity to teach. And primarily, I believe, he is speaking to his disciples. This whole scene is very familiar to the Jewish people. Their whole culture was built on one guy, Moses, going up to a mountaintop, seeing the glory of God, being spoken to by God, being given the Ten Commandments, the law, the instructions for the Israelites, coming back down from the mountain. And what happened when Moses came back down from the mountain? Did the people cheer, Moses is back, this is great, we can follow the Lord, everything's going to be wonderful. That's not what happened. Moses comes back down from the mountain, and these people that were waiting to hear from their God that just rescued them out of Egypt are worshiping idols. They're having a drunken party to worship their idols. It is chaos, and the Lord is not happy. Now, Moses, toward the end of his life, writes a song, and he sings it to the Israelites. And it starts off beautiful. He's reminding them of what God has done. He says in Deuteronomy chapter 32, verses 3 through 4, I will proclaim the name of the Lord. Oh, praise the greatness of our God. He is the rock. His works are perfect and all his ways are just. A faithful God who does no wrong, upright and just is he. And he's reminding these people as they're about to go into the promised land, remember who God is. And then he says this. Remember, this is a song, beautiful song. Verses 5 and 6 of Deuteronomy 32, he turns to the people, they, the people, they are corrupt and not his children. To their shame, they are a warped and crooked generation. Is this the way you repay the Lord, you foolish and unwise people? Is he not your father, your creator, who made you and formed you? That's harsh. Moses, in many ways, is doing what Jesus is doing in a much better way in this passage. He's holding up these two things, saying, remember who God is. That's the transfiguration on the mount. Remember who Jesus is. And now he's saying, but you, you're struggling in your faith. And you're turning away and you're losing your focus on your God, your creator, your savior. So what's going on here? God's people struggled throughout the Old Testament, turning away to idols. It wasn't a one-time thing in the Exodus. Over and over again, they struggle worshiping other gods, other goddesses, turning away from God and turning to idols. And here in Matthew, God has come to them. Jesus, Emmanuel, God with us. Matthew uses that phrase, that name, at Jesus' birth. He is God with us. He is Jesus, he who saves 
He is the Messiah, the promised coming king, the conquering king from God, sent to save his people. God has come. And here in this passage, Jesus heals this poor boy. He drives out the demon. And like so many miracle stories in Matthew, that it's almost an afterthought. Because the picture is not, look how great the miracle, it's look how great is Jesus. Look at what he has done and what it tells us about him. Then there's this interaction with the disciples. Look at verse 19. Then the disciples came to Jesus in private and asked, why couldn't we drive it out? And here's where I think we begin to understand the problem that was going on. The disciples say, why couldn't we drive out the demon? Do you see where their focus is? Themselves. Why couldn't we do it? Aren't we good enough? Aren't we strong enough? Now, Jesus had actually given them authority to drive out demons in another situation. He had said, I'm sending you out. Go do these things. And he gave them authority. But they're struggling here. And Jesus says in verse 20, it's because they have little faith. Because you have so little faith. Now, what is little faith? I'll tell you the scholarly answer is that it's a very bad translation is what it is, unfortunately. The word here for little faith is used everywhere else in Scripture for faithless. You don't believe. And I am... I think the NIV and the ESV did the same thing and a lot of the other modern translations. I think they made a huge mistake here because to say little faith is to say, oh, you have a little bit of faith. If you just had more, you could have done this. That is not what the word means. It means you don't have faith or your faith is completely misplaced. Now, I can go to the Greek here and look at that, and I can look at where that Greek word is used anywhere else, and I can help you to see all of that. But I want to show you in this passage, you don't even need that. Because look at what he says next, okay? So in the English, our translation says, you have little faith, and then what he said, he says, what do you need? You need big faith, right? That's what we would expect. But what does he say next? If you have faith as small as a mustard seed. Jesus has used mustard seed before for something really small, like the smallest of the small things. Why would he say you have little faith if your faith was as small as it could possibly be, you could do great things? That doesn't make sense because that's not what Jesus is saying. And here's my struggle with this. And and it's not just from this passage, but I think so many Christians today, we work so hard at like trying to increase our own faith. I must not be good enough. I must just not believe enough. If I could just believe more, then God would work and he would bless me and my family would be healed and our culture would be healed. We just need to increase our faith. And who are we pointing to? Ourselves. It's about us and our effort and our faith. And if we could be better, things would get better. That misses the point here. Jesus is holding up two completely different kinds of faith. One is what the English word here says, little faith, this lack of faith. It's the disciples trying to rely on themselves to heal this boy. We've got this. We can heal him. Bring the child to us. And they try and nothing happens. 
The boy is not healed. Jesus is holding up a faith that didn't take much, doesn't rely on the person. And if I could bring in the weight of the rest of Scripture, I believe what Jesus is saying is it's not about the size of the faith, it's about what you're having faith in. Who are you trusting? Because a little faith in a big God changes big things. But frankly, a lot of faith in our own efforts changes very little. The disciples were struggling and relying on themselves. This is why, and you might have a footnote, uh, there's a verse missing in the NIV and in many others in verse 21. There is no verse 21, you might notice. It's because the earliest manuscripts don't have it. It was kind of added in later because Mark has this helpful verse where Jesus says, and I believe he says it, Mark records it in Mark chapter 9, verse 29, that these can only come out through prayer and fasting. And so somebody, as they were copying this, evidently that snuck into Matthew as well, but it evidently wasn't in Matthew. But it's helpful because Jesus is saying you needed to depend on something outside of yourself. You needed to really pray and trust in God for this one. You tried to do this in your own power. Two different types of faith. One that trusts in Jesus, one that trusts in self. So now, as we go back to the picture of Moses coming down from the mountain, and these people are, are engaging in all sorts of idolatry, and, and what they wanted to make themselves feel good, and what they wanted to trust in that they could understand and they could wrap their heads around because, you know, this God up on the mountainside that he's shaking it and there's fire and, and giving of the law, they didn't quite understand that, but a gold calf they could get. Like that, 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 that made sense to them. It's idolatry. Trusting in ourselves is idolatry. It's just as bad as the Israelites walking away from the Lord and trusting in their own pleasures and their own idols at that time. And Jesus is pointing them to a different kind of faith. Now, I want to be careful here too with when he says, if you have faith as small as a mustard seed, you can move mountains. It's not that, again, we can't take that and say, well, if I have enough faith, look at what I can do. Just as a mustard seed was a symbol for the littlest of the little, a mountain was the symbol for the biggest of the big. And he's saying the hardest thing that you are called to do, God can do through you if you just trust him. Even just a little. It's not the mountain you want to move. It's not the thing you want to overcome. It's what God is calling us to do. Jesus, previous to this, had called his disciples. Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow me. That's a mountain. That's a mountain they couldn't move. And in the next passage, he's going to remind them again, hey guys, I'm going to die and to raise from the dead. That's a mountain they couldn't move. And so he's telling them, trust, hang on. So here we have this one poor substitute for our faith. It's faith in our own efforts. Be careful that in your zeal for the Lord, you're not actually just trusting in what you can do and what you can accomplish. I think we do this without even realizing it. We try to work things out on our own, certainly for God's glory. But we lay our plans, we put them in place, we try to do great things for God, and yet we're not actually trusting in God's work. 
We're trusting in our own work. I think we start trusting in ourselves when we cease to be amazed at who we are in Christ. When we quit looking intently at what Scripture says Christ has done for us. Mitch did a great job this morning. He's going through Hebrews, doing a great job in adult Sunday school class. We spent time Wednesday night in the men's group looking at Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 1 is just chock full of what God has done for us in Jesus Christ. And the more we look at that, the less we're going to say, I can fix myself the more we're going to look at it and say, look at what God has done for us through Jesus Christ. We slip away to trusting in ourselves because we think way too highly of ourselves and way too little of Jesus Christ. Let's look at another poor substitute for our faith. Because fear can be another poor substitute. Look at verses 22 to 23. When they came together in Galilee, he said to them, The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. They will kill him, and on the third day he will be raised to life. And the disciples were filled with grief. Three times in the book of Matthew, Jesus tells his disciples he's going to die, and he's going to raise from the dead. This is the second of the three. There's one more coming in Matthew chapter 20. Each one adds a little bit of detail. The detail that's added here is that the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. It literally means handed over, and it was often used of betrayal. So there's a hint here, the beginnings of someone is going to betray Jesus. The other two things he tells them, he's told them before. They will kill him, and then on the third day he will be raised to life. Jesus, their teacher, their rabbi, The one that they've left everything to follow has just said, I'm going to die and I'm going to be raised again to life in three days. But look at their response. The disciples were filled with grief. Well, that's interesting. I mean, if I heard somebody was going to die, but then was going to come back to life, I don't think grief would be my response. Worship? amazement, awe and wonder, but grief? Why grief? It's because the disciples, and this is not the first time, they only respond to one part of what Jesus says. They hear, I'm going to die, and the rest of it is like the the adults in Peanuts cartoons, you know, wah, 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 wah. And it's like they just tune it out and they don't hear it because their fear creeps up and they hear our Jesus is going to die and they shut down right there. And they're filled with grief and fear. They have chosen a poor substitute for their faith. Instead of keeping their focus of their faith on Jesus, now the focus has shifted all of a sudden to their fear. And they're focused there. Fear makes us think that we are focusing on the most important, most urgent thing that's going on. But what fear so often does is take our eyes off Jesus and either put it right back on ourselves or on situations in our lives. We focus on the problem instead of on the solution and the power of Jesus Christ. The disciples were able to focus on his death but we're unable to focus on the resurrection. 
because their fear got in the way. So we need to be careful to keep the focus of our faith on Jesus and not on this poor substitute of our own efforts or our own fears. Let's look at the third poor substitute for faith in verses 24 to 27. Some people come to Jesus with a kind of controversial issue. Look at verse 24. After Jesus and his disciples arrived in Capernaum, the collectors of the two drachma temple tax came to Peter and asked, doesn't your teacher pay the temple tax? Now, later on, you're going to read, like later in Matthew, render under Caesar, what is Caesar's? That's not this passage. That's another passage. So if you're familiar with that, don't bring it in here. It's a completely different issue. This is the temple tax. The temple tax was a Jewish tax, not a Roman tax. It was not really a very official tax. Some Jewish people paid it, some didn't. They could kind of pay it if they wanted to pay it. They didn't have to. It was based on an Old Testament law, but it was kind of fuzzy. It was a little vague. It was given to support the upkeep of the temple in Jerusalem. And so these people are coming to Peter asking, does your teacher, Jesus, Does he pay the temple tax? Does he care about the temple? Is he going to give to this? Or like some other people, some other Jewish people, are they not going to give to this? It's like they're asking which side is Jesus on on this really important issue. He needs to pick a side. Do you ever feel like there's a controversial issue in the world and you feel forced to pick a side? We face those all the time. And I think it's really helpful to see what Jesus does here. Verses 25 to 26. First of all, Peter answers for Jesus, which is interesting that he didn't ask Jesus first. Peter being Peter, I think. Yes, he does, he replied. When Peter came into the house, Jesus was the first to speak. Love that. You know, it's like, Peter, cool your jets. Listen to me for a second. Okay, just calm down and listen. And Jesus says, what do you think, Simon? From whom do the kings of the earth collect duty and taxes from their own children or from others? From others, Peter answered. Then the children are exempt, Jesus said to him. So the question is, should Jesus pay this tax? This tax. And and please, I know right now you're like, I don't really care if Jesus should pay a tax or not. But hold on. This is important. Should Jesus. Jesus, pay this tax. That's the question. But Jesus raises a more important question. And he uses this illustration. The kings of the earth, just kings, normal kings, who do they charge tax to, Peter? Do they charge the people or their own children? And Peter's answer is obvious. Well, duh, Jesus, the the children of the king are exempt from the tax. Of course the children wouldn't pay the tax. Now remember, what was this tax for? The temple. God's temple. It was God's dwelling place among his people. That's what the temple was to the Jewish people. So who is the king in the illustration? God. And Jesus is making a point to Peter. Peter, I'm the son of God. I don't have to pay this tax. I'm exempt from it. Because I'm the son of God. So here's this issue. Which side are you on? And Jesus kind of says, hold on. Look at me. I'm Jesus, the Son of God. He's bigger than the issue. 
He's more important than the question. And sometimes we get so focused on the question of a particular debate and which side we're on that we take our eyes off of Jesus. Okay, but that doesn't answer the question. Is he going to pay the tax or not? And that's where he goes in verse 27. But so that we may not cause offense, go to the lake and throw out your line. Take the first fish you catch, open its mouth, and you will find a four drachma coin. Take it and give it to them for my tax and yours. Peter, or rather Jesus says he's going to pay the tax. He doesn't have to. He's bigger than that. But he's going to anyways. So as to not cause offense, which I thought was interesting because think of all the times that Jesus offended people. Like Jesus was not afraid to offend people. He called the the leaders of the Israelites hypocrites. He healed on the Sabbath. He claimed that he had the power to forgive sins. All of this caused great offense among people. But all of those things if he didn't do them, would have undermined who he was. It was core to his mission to do those things, even if they caused offense. This here is not core to his mission. And he's not willing to allow it to cause trouble for the mission that he's come for. And so he is willing to not cause offense in this case. Because it's not important enough to argue about. And what a miracle. He tells Peter to catch a fish and there'll be a coin in the fish's mouth to pay for Peter's tax and Jesus's tax. That's awesome. I'm not saying go out and catch fish and, you know, there's your retirement. That's not, that would be an improper application, okay? This was a one-time deal here as far as we know. However, there's an interesting little side note here I do want to point out. According to tradition, history, the temple tax was for those 20 years and up. All the disciples are with Jesus here. Who pays the temple tax? Jesus and Peter. Why not the rest of the disciples? More than likely, they were under 20 years old at this point. Have you ever thought about that? These were kids. Young people. Teenagers, probably. It's amazing that God used them to change the world because it wasn't about them. It was about Jesus. Friends, contemporary controversial issues are a poor substitute for Jesus Christ. There's a lot of issues in the world right now that people are saying, which side are you on? Are you a mask person or are you not a mask person? Where are you on this issue? What about social justice? What about gun control? What about other political issues or things out there in the news? Which side are you on? You've got to pick a side. Where's your church stand? We cannot, friends, Christians, we cannot allow any of those issues to become a substitute for the gospel of Jesus Christ. Period. Controversial issues can easily become the focus of our faith either by joining in them or by fighting against them. Both ways become substitutes of faith. Some people say, well, I'm all for social justice. I'm all for that. I want to help the poor and I'm going to go out and I'm going to rally and I'm going to participate in these things on the street and hold up my banners and I'm going to wave them around. That's the gospel of Jesus Christ. I'm all for that. And they've substituted the gospel for a contemporary issue. But then there are other Christians. I am so against that. 
And all I want to talk about is how evil that is and how wrong those people are. And that's just so awful. Have you heard what these other people are saying about it? I'm so against that. And guess what they've done too? They've substituted the gospel of Jesus Christ for a social issue. We're not to be defined by the social issues that we're for or we're against. We're to be defined by our faith and our trust in Jesus Christ. Let's look at how we can display and declare the gospel of Jesus Christ in all of these issues. That's what Jesus did. He said, it's about me. I'm greater than this. But I'm going to enter into this however it helps my mission. We must be careful to keep the focus of our faith on Christ and not on the poor substitute of any of our own personal or social issues of the day. It's so easy to substitute faith for something else. Here I see three examples, but there's so many other ones in Scripture. And what I want you to remember from this passage what I hope that you're seeing all throughout Matthew from all of these sermons and every time you pick up the Bible is that the main focus of faith must always, always be on Jesus Christ. Always. Keep coming back to who Jesus is. When you're faced with something, you say, I don't know how to respond to that, but I know who Jesus is. Look to who he is. When somebody wants an answer on a particular issue, say, who is Jesus Christ? Who am I trusting him to be? Do I believe in his death, burial, and resurrection? Do I believe in the power of the gospel to change the world? And if, in believing in that, you can get involved in other things, that's great. But don't substitute the gospel for those other things. Christ must always be the main focus of our faith. Anything else is always a poor substitute. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we see your son, Jesus, in his earthly ministry, navigating so many difficult issues. People that saw him but didn't really understand. People that opposed him and refused to accept who he was. Disciples that followed him but often wanted to tell him who he should be. And just like us, all of them were trying to do all of this in their own power. And yet your son declared over and over again why he came, where he was going, his focus on the cross and the resurrection, and on the salvation that he would bring through what he would do for us in our place. And so, Father, I pray as we're about to take communion now, I pray that that would be our focus. I pray that you would right now check our faith, test our faith, help us to look intently at our faith and to ask ourselves, are we focused on some substitute distracting thing or is our faith focused on Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior? And God, if we need to be realigned, I pray that through the power of your Holy Spirit, and the truth of your word, and the encouragement of those around us, that you would help us to be realigned in our faith, to trust in Jesus and him alone. In whose name we pray, amen.